I don't like police brutality, but I love Batman brutality. Welcome, everyone, to the critically, internationally acclaimed Four Corners Crimecast! We're now international. We've gone international. We've been international. We've been international since we put this podcast yeah, out. Yeah, our like, first listener was in like Deja Booty or something. <laughs> anyway, I want to shout out to our listener in Scotland, uh, Jackie. Thank you for messaging us. We appreciate it greatly. It's very fun. Hi, Jackie. Hi. As always, my name is Jake. My name is Rory. And I'm your host, Katie. And today we are finishing out our series on Robert Hansen. You don't look too convinced by that intro. Threw you off a little? It sounded strange. It was exceptional. It's a circus tent extravaganza. It's an announcement. You are not a carnival barker, and this is not a freak show. (laughs) I feel like we argue every week about how the podcast should start and end. And exactly the same. The and exact... I finally got it different. Okay. You get one. Yes. That was the one different. And Gotland, let us know what you think of Jake's intro. Send in another message. Counting on you. She's the whole country now. She has a name. Jackie in Scotland. <laughs> I didn't want to just I just didn't want to single her out like, oh, you oh, have to message us now. Look her up and be like, oh, Jackie in Scotland. <laughs> I'm gonna find you. Jackie. See, I don't want to Shout her out and like make her feel like she has to message us back telling us whether or not she likes Jake's No strings intro. attached, Jackie. So Scotland, <laughs> if you're in Scotland and your name happens to be Jackie and you wanted to send us a message telling us what you thought about Jake's intro, please do that. Thank you. Katie. None of this is good. <laughs> <laughs> it's excellent. Katie, we're going to roll with the flow. Katie, where did we leave off last week? Last week we left off with... Robert Hansen, in the height of his serial killing spree, having murdered eight women in the Anchorage and Seward areas of Alaska. After the December 1981 murder of Andrea Altieri, Hansen took a five-month break from abducting and killing women. While it's not known for sure, Hansen likely heard the chatter around Anchorage about the police's newly opened investigation into the missing dancers and decided to take a cooling-off period to avoid being caught. This changed in May of 1982 when Sue Luna arrived in Anchorage and then two weeks later vanished without a trace. So can this just be a coincidence? Like, I know there is some speculation or argument among the forensic scientific community where serial killers have a natural cooling off period after they murder someone. Could this have just fallen in line? Or do you think that he actually thought it out and was like, okay, I need to calm down. I'm getting a little too out there. Like, or is it just a the impulse was fulfilled type of thing. I think after killing eight women in such rapid succession, it would be an extreme coincidence that he just happened to take a cooling off period right now, right as the police started an investigation. I see. That makes that also makes sense. I just wonder how you feel about the actual argument that they're... Generally, yes, they do take cooling off periods, but it's, this is just would be a weird time for it to just... And be like, okay, well, I'm satisfied now. So, like, what I've, what I've grown up to believe in, like, serial killer movies and shows is that, like, there is a cooling off period. Like, they're going to hit their cooling off period. It's not a usually pre-planned it's, thing. It's kind of like a mental thing. Usually it, it tends to be sometimes after their first because the whole enormity of what they've just done hits them. And so they take a break between and then they go back into it. But So could this have been his ramp period? I mean, he... 
he didn't have a specific ramp and cooling off period. He ramped the whole time. Okay. I mean, there was no... Once he started, there was no stopping him. Wide really. open throttle. Yeah. As likely as that probably is, I also have a theory. And that theory is that it was right after December. He's a baker. He ate a shit ton of delicious Christmas treats. Had to work it off because he wasn't able to move. You have to be able to move to do these things. You have to be able to run. You have to be able to be fit. And that's hard for a baker come January. His thing was candy, not like baked goods. He always had a ton of candy wrappers in his car. You think nobody eats hard candy at Christmas? Tell Lifesavers that. Well, your theory was about baked goods. (laughs) Okay, yeah. Because he's a baker, but (laughs) he liked candy better. What kind of uh, cake do you get on Christmas? Fruitcake. Nobody eats those, though. Yeah, but for some reason, it still seems like the thing to give out on Christmas. It is kind of a traditional gift. How did we get to Christmas? Let's go back to the episode. In July, Hansen's bakery had become successful enough to use some of his funds to purchase his very own Super Cub, a relatively small two-seater airplane that allows for short takeoffs perfect for the Alaskan wilderness. What was the name of his Super Cub? It was N308NZ. That's it? Yeah, they don't have names. They just have tail numbers. That's not true, is it? Yeah. I mean, you can give your plane a name, You I can guess. name it, but it's not going to be registered with the FAA under... He called it the Ice Skipper. It was just the tail number. When you call into the radio tower to take off, say this is in. No, no. They called it the Yogi Air. Because it was a cub? Yeah, and he'd say Yogi Air. This is, no, this no, is Yogi did. Air. Yogi Air in 3089Z. Hey, boo-boo, I'm coming in for a landing. If you recall from last episode, Hansen did apply for his pilot's license, but was denied for lying about taking lithium. For whatever reason, this didn't stop him from owning and operating an aircraft. It's the same as cars, actually. You can own one, even if you don't have a driver's license. Especially if you have enough dough. Around this time is also when Hansen used some of his hard-earned bakery money to purchase several disguises for himself to wear while prowling for women. After 15 years living in Anchorage, women were starting to recognize Hansen and avoid him, making picking up victims more difficult. I couldn't find anything on exactly what kind of disguises he'd wear, but he's quoted saying, I could never put them on so they looked halfway real to me. So I like to imagine they were multiple pairs of the sweaty glasses with the googly eyes and fake nose. And he was too stupid to realize that they weren't actually a real disguise. <laughs> I just imagine him with like those like two mustaches, like little thin Charlie Chaplin mustaches, and he has them on his eyebrows. <laughs> It's like, this looks natural, right? No, it doesn't. It doesn't look natural. It's like, how can I make myself look dumber? <laughs> you think he just ran out of bakery money, and so he ended up at, like, a, a Walmart, and he bought a clown's wig? He just, like, <laughs> put it on. He's like, it just doesn't look natural. Just baking beards for himself out of bread. <laughs> just, just sticking bread to his face. <laughs> He's got a couple of baguettes dangling from his chin. Oh, this crouton beard looks a little wispy. On a more serious note, Hansen would also disguise who he was as a person, telling women he was a wealthy doctor, oil worker, or photographer, and flashing large wads of cash at them to entice them. This is exactly what he did with Tammy Peterson, who believed she was meeting a photographer who was going to pay her $300 to pose for pictures. Last time she was seen alive was by her parents, who watched her pack costumes to wear for the photo shoot and head out the door. On September 12, 1982, two Anchorage police officers hunting on the Nick River stumbled upon what appeared to be human bones sticking up from a sandbar. 
Next to them, half buried, was a boot and blue ski jacket. It was getting dark when the officers discovered the bones, so they went back to camp for the night and phoned the Alaska State Troopers the next morning. I just imagine that they were like, oh, these bones will still be here in the morning, and then boom, flashed to like 60 days later, and the sun finally came back up. After sending the bones for an autopsy and identification, they learned they belonged to Sherry Morrow, who'd been missing since November of 1981. The name led the state troopers to the Anchorage PD's investigation of the missing dancers, and they decided to return to the area Sherry's remains were found to look for the bodies of the other missing women. No other bodies were found, but state trooper Lyle Hogsman was assigned to the missing dancers case and would eventually be a crucial element in Hansen's arrest. So at this point, they still had no idea about Hanson. They were just starting to notice the trend of dancers going missing and then bodies showing up. Basically. Didn't they kind of have him tagged? They, they didn't put a tag on him or anything for the report that was filed to the Rape Crisis Center. Not really, no. I mean, he's had all of these other convictions, too, for the kidnapping and stuff, but they didn't really assume that he was responsible for eight women going missing. I think it's really crazy to think that a bunch of these women recognized him and they're like, oh, don't go with him. But the cops hadn't, like, hadn't done anything. It's like... Prostitutes code. They, like, kind of look out for each other. Like, if you know there's a bad John around, you tell them. Like, they're the first to know. Police can't really do anything with that information, though. They can't assume that you're responsible for women going missing just because the prostitutes hear you're a bad John or say you're a bad John. In January of 1983, Hansen returned to his old kleptomaniac ways and made several trips in his pain to Hawk Lake, where he burglarized multiple cabins. He stole guns, hunting trophies, CB radios, cassette players, and a propane gas cylinder, which he loaded onto the Super Cub and flew back to Anchorage. In February, 24-year-old Angela Federn disappeared from Anchorage after telling her boss she had a trick lined up that night for $300. She wasn't reported missing until May, three months after she disappeared. So is her boss technically a strip club manager? Mm-hmm. So did he just assume that since she disappeared, this sort of is happening to women? It just sort of happens in his line of work? So he didn't think much of it until three months later? He didn't really say when he reported her missing. He was like, yeah, I probably should have done this sooner. And that was about it. The next month, on March 25th, 22-year-old Teresa Watson's services were solicited by Robert Hansen. He had offered her $300 to have lunch and spend time with him. Instead, he flew her to Scenic Lake, landed on the ice, and murdered her. The ground was too frozen for him to dig a grave, so he simply left her body where she'd been killed. Was it so secluded that he just didn't think it mattered, or...? He just couldn't bury her. He couldn't do anything. The ground was so frozen that he had no other options but to kind of just leave it, walk away. Seems like if you're on a lake, you could go out in the lake and dig a hole in the ice and throw the body in the hole, right? How are you going to dig a hole in ice? Yeah, he didn't, like, carry a saw or anything with him to cut through the ice. This is pretty unprepared for a Bobby boy. Usually they seem more prepared than he this. He hasn't been caught yet. He doesn't need to be prepared. In April, Hansen killed two more women. The first was 24-year-old Dylan Fry, who was flown to an area by the Nick River and murdered. The second woman was Paula Golding, who disappeared on April 24, 1983. She had been dancing at the Great Alaskan Bush Company when Hansen approached her and offered her $300 to meet him at a shopping mall the next day. She agreed, and the two met around 11.45 that morning. When Hansen arrived, Paula was slightly concerned by the fact Hansen had lied to her about his car color, but after a good look at his face, she decided that he was harmless. So she just stared into his 
eyes and decided he wasn't as creepy as he was? He or? looked like a dork. Yeah, it's like the other woman, one of his other victims, said he looks like the perfect dork. Perfect dork. They drove for a while before Hanson pulled into a deserted parking lot. He put his hand over the back of her seat and began to play with her hair, distracting her from his other hand, which was reaching under the seat. Hanson suddenly grabbed Paula's hair and pointed a pistol in her face, telling her to be good as he'd done this many times before. He pushed her to the floorboard on her knees and handcuffed her wrists behind her back. Paula was helpless as Hanson drove her to a private airport where he kept his super cub. Paula was shoved into the back of the plane, where the rear seat should have been, and forced into a fetal position. He flew her to a dense bush area of the Nick and landed the plane, removing Paula's handcuffs and helping her out. Hanson led her by the arm to a meat shack further into the woods, a small cabin where hunters took their animals to butcher and hang the meat. There's just these shacks hanging out in the woods? Yes. Oh man, that's, that's where horror stories come from. As they walked, both Paula and Hanson heard a plane approaching and watched as it circled the area, looking for a place to land. The hope Paula felt was only brief as the plane continued on its way after a few moments. Once inside the shack, Hanson handcuffed Paula's wrists behind her around one of the support beams. He left her for a moment while he went and retrieved his favorite Mini-14 rifle from the plane. Leaving it outside the door, Hanson uncuffed Paula, who immediately began attacking him. She managed to slip away, running through the woods for a short distance before Hanson caught up and grabbed her. He tried reassuring her that he wasn't going to kill her, but his words had no effect and Paula escaped and ran again. Hanson caught up, ripping her shirt as he used it to pull her to the ground. Paula continued to scream, but this time she didn't have to escape his grip, he let her go. As she ran, he aimed his rifle and fired, shooting Paula through the heart and killing her instantly. So at that point, he just decided to make it more like sport? Basically. That's I it. think his original idea was to sexually assault her, and she fought too much, and so he just said, okay, then go, and I'm just going to kill you instead. Not worth the struggle at this point. Basically. She wasn't complying the way he wanted her to. By June of 1983, Hansen had killed 16 women and was comfortable in his methods, which had yet to fail him. As with most all serial killers, this comfort would be his undoing. Standing on the daylight at midnight corner of 4th Avenue was 19-year-old Cindy Paulson, waiting for a John on a slow Sunday night. As she stood, a car she recognized pulled up. The man had stood her up the night before, giving her reason to raise prices for him. Cindy and Hanson agreed to $200 for oral sex, and she got into the car. As Cindy thought their interaction was about to be over, she was caught off guard by Hanson instead grabbing her hair, pulling her head back, and pointing a pistol in her face. Handcuffing her, he told her to keep quiet and comply, as he'd done this before and knew what he was doing. Why does he say that to all of them? Like, is he assuring himself that he knows what he's doing? Makes him comply. It's routine. It's like any other situation where someone's like, oh, don't worry, I've done this a bunch. And you're like, okay, well, if you say that, then if I guess... If you've done it a bunch. Yeah, if you say that, then I guess you probably know what you're doing, and I'm not going to argue with you on it. Gloria Hansen and their children were out of town on a trip, taken on Hansen's suggestion. Rather than follow his normal routine of going straight to his airplane, Hansen took Cindy to his home. He led her to his trophy room, the walls and floors covered in taxidermy animal heads, antlers, and rugs. As she took in her surroundings, he handcuffed her arms around a support beam and put a chain around her neck, which he secured to a metal ring on the beam. Hansen then raped and sodomized her, lying down on the couch once he was done. 
Before he could fall asleep, Cindy told him that she had to pee, and Hanson tossed her a towel from the bathroom before lying back down and taking a nap. She was supposed to pee on the towel then? Yes, and she did. Well, I mean, obviously you gotta pee, you gotta pee, but that's pretty brutal. After a few hours, Hanson woke and unchained Cindy, but left the handcuffs on. He showed her his trophies and told her about the records he'd won hunting. Looking at one of his plaques, Cindy realized that the name he'd given her was wrong. His name was Robert Hansen. She also realized that him showing something with his real name on it meant that he was going to kill her. After he was done bragging, Hansen forced Cindy onto his bearskin rug and raped her again. Afterwards, he let her use the restroom unchained, then uncuffed her when she came out so she could get dressed. He then led her outside and forced her onto the floor of the back seat, covering her with a blanket. Hansen drove to the airport and left Cindy in the back seat as he loaded his airplane, telling her he'd kill her if she moved. Once he was out of the car, Cindy crawled up and looked out the window. Seeing he was distracted and a decent distance away, she decided it was now or never. Still handcuffed, she crawled into the front seat and out the driver's door and began to run towards Fifth Avenue with Hansen chasing her. He just got too comfortable, right? Because he left her and walked away to his plane. Yeah. What did he expect? Just because he's out on an airport, someone's not going to take off? It varies person to person. Some people would comply completely with the threat of being killed, and some people would. It's See, that's the problem. Too many straight had complied, and he thought it was just going to stay that way. I mean, I'm sure at some point he knew this might happen, but I don't think he expected it because she had been pretty compliant thus far. As Cindy made it onto the road, a man on his way to work saw her running down the street, barefoot, handcuffed, and terrified. Cindy heard the truck and turned around, putting her cuffed wrists into the air and screaming for help. The man slowed down and stopped right as Hanson made it onto the street and saw him breaking. He quickly turned around and ran back to his airplane, knowing he had to get out of there as soon as possible or his risk of getting caught was high. Cindy climbed into the man's truck and told him to take her to the Mush Inn so she could call her boyfriend and quickly. As they drove away, an airport security guard spotted Hansen's car parked by the Super Cub and watched as Hansen came running from behind the plane. As soon as he saw the guard, he casually slowed to a walk, got into his car, and left. Thinking it was suspicious, the guard took down Hansen's plate number on the off chance he heard something. After dropping Cindy off at the hotel, the man who picked her up drove to work and called the Anchorage Police Department to report what had happened. As they were dispatched to Cindy, Hansen was already busy creating his alibi. He phoned his friend John, telling him, Well, my wife and kids are in Europe. I was lonely. So, well, I picked up a prostitute and took her to the house. We had sex. Then she raised the price. I wouldn't pay it. You know, a deal's a deal, right, John? Anyway, just because I wouldn't pay her more, she's hollering rape. John met Hanson at a local cafe and decided on a story. They would tell police that Hanson had gone to John's apartment around 12.30, and they'd been together until after 5. Hanson also asked John to hang on to the pistol he pointed in Cindy's face. How good of friends were this John character and Bobby boy? Pretty good friends, I guess. I think you, he... Right? You gotta be, because... I think John owed him a favor. Oh, this isn't the type of guy you want to owe a favor, because you're like... you. He helps you move one weekend, and then the next weekend, he's like... I need an alibi for rape, murder, and will you hold this gun? Yeah. It's like, come on, man. That's not even. Now you owe me one. Everyone is... He knew the nice, respectable family guy, Hanson, so he basically thought, oh, something went wrong with a prostitute, and he did nothing wrong. So that's why he was so willing to provide an alibi. 
said, were you actually trying to pay the prostitutes in dough this time? Once officers got to the Mush Inn, the clerk told them that Cindy had gone to another hotel. Once they figured out how to find her, they knocked on the hotel door and were met by Cindy, who was hysterical and still handcuffed. Once she'd explained what had happened, an officer drove her to the hospital for a rape examination. On the way, they passed the airfield where Hanson kept his plane. Cindy pointed it out, and they drove through the rows of planes until Cindy spotted Hanson's super cub. The security guard who'd seen Hanson acting suspicious came over and spoke to the officers, giving them the plate number he'd written down. Anchorage PD also contacted air traffic, who were able to name Hanson as the owner of the plane Cindy had pointed out. The owner. But not necessarily the pilot, is what his attorney should have said. Because he doesn't have a license, right? How's he going to pilot a plane with no license? Someone else was piloting the plane. Thank you for defending him, defense attorney Jake. I'm just getting an angle. Just getting an angle here. It's an obvious one, too. I can't believe they didn't go with it. Even more damning evidence came with Cindy's exam at the hospital. She had been wearing a tampon when she was raped by Hansen, which was used to confirm the presence of semen. Everything Cindy had told officers was confirmed by tests and registration, and at 6.51 he pulled into his house, which also perfectly fit Cindy's description. Hansen was asked to come into the station for questioning, as suspects couldn't be arrested in their own home only on probable cause. Hansen agreed and denied any and every question he was asked about the kidnapping and rape. He signed consent to search waivers for his home and car, likely thinking he hadn't left anything for officers to find. He was right in a way, as the search was completely botched and only very specific pieces of evidence were looked for, such as the towel that Cindy had urinated on, which Hansen had already put into the wash. And then what, did they just miss his trophy room? Because that's like reason enough for a 72-hour hold, I think. I mean, they're probably all hunters, and they probably walked in and were like, damn, you guys killed a lot of shit. See any strippers in there? Nope. All right, let's go. After three hours with APD, Hansen was told he was free to go. To make matters worse, Cindy was asked to take a polygraph, but left Anchorage before she did so. Fled Anchorage? Why? She was terrified. I mean, if you... They just let him go. No, I meant, why did they let him go? Oh, they had nothing to hold him on. I mean, they basically saw nothing that they could use to physically confirm her story, and so they had to just let him go and hopefully get a warrant later. On June 20th, one of the investigators on the case had a surprising visitor, Hanson's attorney. The two talked for around two hours, discussing Hanson's previous kidnapping and rape convictions and their implication on the Cindy Paulson case. The investigator realized he'd made a glaring mistake during the search the week before. Hansen was a convicted felon, and felons cannot own handguns. During the search, at least two were found in Hansen's home, meaning they already had two felonies on him, not even relating to the Paulson case. At this point, the Anchorage PD was in a tough spot regarding Hansen. They knew that he had previous convictions for stories very similar to Cindy's, but they had no evidence to prove that she was telling the truth. To make matters worse, after being asked to take the polygraph and leaving Anchorage, Cindy had disappeared. When she was found again after an arrest for prostitution in Portland, investigators weren't able to get in contact with her, forcing them to close the case. Is this a case of a sex worker being ignored again, or did they like actually try to find her, but she was you know, moving around because she was scared or whatever, and they couldn't get a hold of her? Yeah, basically, she dropped off the face of the earth so far that they had no way to 
confirm that she still wanted to press charges. Oh, okay. They couldn't get a phone? I know it was the 80s, but they had phones, right? She didn't want to talk to them. Yeah. She, They asked her to take a polygraph, and she thought she was in trouble, and so she just ran. And so she ran sex worker shame. thousands of miles away. Like, yeah. It's not like Anchorage PD is sitting there looking at the arrest records from Portland either. They probably yeah, didn't no, know she was arrested. They tried very hard to find her, but they could get nothing out of her to further the case. When another officer, Greg Baker with APD, looked into the Paulson case again, he realized that something had to be done and the investigators weren't going to do it. He felt that Hansen, with his background and the Paulson case, had much more he was hiding than just kidnapping and rape. And that trophy room tipped him off, too. This guy was normal. He got in touch with the state troopers who were handling the missing dancers and discussed his feelings with them. Knowing that his career was on the line for handing the case to a different agency, Baker spoke with his sergeant, who told him to do what he thought was right. Baker then compiled every piece of information he could find on Hansen into a case file and dropped it off with the state troopers. So, Baker, Big B Baker, selling out Little B Baker. I don't think selling out works there. I think so, because they have a brotherhood through the word Baker. You didn't quite get that from that. At this point, there was still no evidence connecting any of the missing dancers' murders to each other. The state troopers were working each case as an individual disappearance, rather than thinking about the possibility of a serial killer on the loose. That changed on September 2nd, when Paula Golding's body was found. She was killed by a .223 caliber gun, the same weapon used to kill Sherry Morrow. The locations of both women's bodies confirmed in the troopers' minds that the women had been killed by the same person. Lyle Hogsman, the trooper mentioned earlier who was in charge of the missing dancers' cases, was away on vacation while all this was going on, meaning another detective had to take over the case for the time being. I think he was, like, waiting for all this, and then he's like, of course, I take a vacation, and the shit goes down. Basically, yeah. Typical. When the ballistics were confirmed, the detective handed the cases for the time being. Lynn Floth decided to break open the boxes of case files and review everything they had so far. One of the first things he grabbed was a large envelope, the same one that Greg Baker had dropped off back in June. Reading through all the information on Robert Hansen, Floth realized quickly that Robert Hansen was more than likely their prime suspect. A plane was sent out to the Alaskan wilderness to find Lyle Hogsman and tell them he was needed in the office as soon as possible. When he arrived, he found that multiple detectives were working full-time to track down every piece of information they could possibly find on Hansen. On September 18th, an airboat was sent out to the Nick River to search the bank for bodies of the missing dancers. Families of some of the women missing went out and assisted in the search. Unfortunately, nothing was found. To help seal their case on Hansen, the state troopers contacted Special Agent John Douglas of the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit for assistance on a criminal profile and with making sure their case was airtight. The profile was an exact match to Hansen, and they were given pointers on how to interview him and what to look for when they searched his home. Finally, when they were confident they had Hansen dead to rights, Glenn Floth contacted the district attorney's office to prepare all the legal documents and warrants they needed. On October 26, 1983, Floth went before a judge with an affidavit and requests for eight different search warrants, all of which were signed. A little after 8 a.m. on October 27th, Hansen was approached at his bakery and asked to come to the station for questioning. 
He agreed, pretending as if he had no idea what they could possibly want to ask him. Hansen was brought into an interrogation room where troopers had hung crime scene photos on the walls, spread files about Hansen's family and friends on the desk, and pictures of Sherry Morrow and Paula Golding's bodies. So I guess this isn't about you guys wanting my donut recipe. Hansen was brought in, sat down, and left alone to sit and look at everything the troopers had on him. At his home, the search warrants were being executed, properly this time. Hansen's now famous map marked with all of the locations of his victims, the souvenirs he'd taken from the women he killed, and the many 14 were all found hidden inside the home. Were they, like, really well hidden, or were they just kind of stashed and they had just been missed the first time? He had the map behind his headboard of his bed, and all of the guns were, I think, in the attic, like, behind the boards of the walls. Ah, okay. That's not a very good place to keep your gun if you're using it for self-defense instead of murder. When the five-hour interview began, Hansen admitted to the crimes he'd been convicted of readily. When detectives began asking him about the murders, he resorted back to his usual, she asked for more money and then cried rape stories, and denied killing any of the women. By the end of the interview, when he knew he wasn't getting out of it, he requested an attorney. Back at his home, the wife of the man who had helped Hansen with his alibi for the Paulson case happened to walk by and see the heavy police presence. She spoke to an officer, telling them that her husband John had lied for Hansen and never been with him on June 13th. Now he had no alibi for any of his crimes. He was booked into jail and his bond set at $500,000. So quickly he went from like, oh, I'm good, I got an alibi. Then all of a sudden, he sees that woman walk up and he's like, fuck. On November 3rd, a grand jury indicted Hansen on first-degree assault and kidnapping, five counts of misconduct in possession of a handgun, theft in the second degree, and theft by deception and insurance fraud. He pleaded not guilty to all of the charges. So at this point, they, were only, they weren't even trying to get him on the, uh, any of the murders, right? No, they, well, they didn't have, like their cases complete and ready for that but they were they wanted him on everything the murder the rapes the cabin theft and the insurance fraud and they had enough yeah so they already had enough shit to grab him so they figured grab him now and uh, put the rest of it together later basically as the state troopers continued to prepare their case on the missing dancers hansen sat in jail and considered his choices on february 17th after speaking to his attorney hansen decided he was ready to talk on February 22nd, his two-day confession began. By the second day, he'd confessed to murdering Sherry Morrow, Paula Golding, Joanne Messina, Nicoletta Annie, and Andrea Altieri. In addition to the murders, he confessed to raping at least 30 women. Do we think he actually raped all 30 of those women? Yes, okay. 100%. So he's not trying to pump up his numbers? No, if he was, he would have confessed to all 16 of the murders, too. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Knowing that he'd be spending the rest of his life in prison, the district attorney decided he was content with Hansen's confession and wouldn't ask for any more. All they were concerned with now was identifying and locating the bodies that were marked on his map. Hansen was able to identify 11 grave sites, but he couldn't narrow down an exact location just looking at the map. On February 25th, troopers took Hansen out to the Alaskan wilderness, flying to the areas marked on his map and having Hansen show them where the bodies likely were. What they didn't expect was just how exciting revisiting the areas would be to Hansen. 
As soon as the plane would land, Hansen would bound out into the snow, running to the grave and pointing them out with a smile. At some locations, he even began digging through the snow to find the bodies. After seeing his behavior, troopers decided to not give Hansen the pleasure anymore and would search for the bodies on their own. So now seems like about as good a time as any to ask, like, what psychological dealings do we see with Robert Hansen here? Because he's obviously a killer. He's obviously uh, enthralled by it. But we don't see this as often. We see a lot of killers who are like, either remorseful or they try to avoid it even when they're taking out to show their uh you know to sh- you know in their plea deals or whatever but he's just stoked on it so what does that say about him i mean it's relatively common that they're excited to revisit that's why they take souvenirs is cuz they basically get if it's a sexual crime they get sexual pleasure from revisiting and remembering what had happened so basically taking him back to the scene was like him committing the murder again. Okay, so it's just stirring it all up for him and making him all happy. Basically, yeah. He he has positive memories there, and being at the exact site and knowing that the body is there is basically the best thing in the world for him, unfortunately. It's like the complete opposite of remorse, right? Yeah. Most of the time, they're never actually remorseful. It's all for show. Like, you can see that with Iran's right now, especially he said he's sorry to all of his victims and blah, 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 and he's not. It's just to make them look better. And he's faking his wheelchair and shit. Oh, yeah. On February 27th, 1984, Hansen was sentenced to 461 years in prison, plus life without the possibility of parole. Once the snow had thawed in late April, the official search for the bodies began. Two bodies were found the first day, Sue Luna and Malai Larson. In total, seven were found, a Jane Doe, also named Horseshoe Harriet, Angela Fettern, Tamara Peterson, Lisa Futrell, and Teresa Watson. A few weeks later, bloodhounds were brought out in hopes of finding the remaining women, but they were unsuccessful. The last victim to be found was Delyn Fry, whose body was discovered after heavy rains on August 20th, 1985. Is it at all possible that... Never mind. I don't want to go there. I feel like they come up with some bad names for their Jane Doe's. It's based on where they were found. Iklutna Annie was on Iklutna Road, and Horseshoe Harriet was the Horseshoe Lake, I think. After moving multiple times, Hansen was eventually held at the Lemon Creek Prison in Juneau. After joining general population receiving a job, prison officials acted on a tip from an informant in January of 1990 and discovered an escape plan hidden in Hansen's belongings. He had a map of southeast Alaska and an aeronautical chart of Anchorage, correspondence with a boat broker, articles on aircraft safety and explosives, and a hand-knit winter cap. Did his boat broker get in trouble? I don't know, honestly. Like, like how did you talk to this dude? Are you going to trade him pennies on the dollar in your jail money? His plan was to steal an airplane from the Juneau airport and fly to a boat harbor. Later that month, he was transferred to a maximum security facility in Seward and placed on 21-hour-a-day lockup. He was held there until May of 2014, when he was moved to Anchorage to receive medical treatment for his failing health. On August 21, 2014, Hansen died at the age of 75. To this day, the identities of Iglutna Annie and Horseshoe Harriet are unknown. Their bodies were exhumed in 2014 in hopes of DNA identifying them, but as of 2020, we still do not know who they are. 
Anyone with any information that may lead to their identification and return to their families should contact the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children or the Alaska Department of Public Safety. Holy shit. That was a rough one. And so throughout, obviously, as more and more people sign up for these DNA testing services and whatnot, there's more and more chances that he could be found, right? Or that the uh, Jane Doe's could be identified. Yeah, and that's why they exhumed. That's why the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children got involved, because they have a pretty large DNA base, and they're hoping to eventually, someday, hopefully know who they are, and at least bring some closure to whoever's looking for them. That's awesome. Is that going to do it for Robert Hansen? That is it, yep. What a long road. Yeah. Rough. I didn't know his crimes were this expansive and insane. Yeah. I always thought you'd hear him as like that guy that hunted women. Hun- hunted women, but he I mean, realistically he didn't just take him out and drop him into the wilderness and hunt them like everyone says. Is it at all possible he's just like a early 90s or an 80s incel? Like he's got the guns, he's got the hunting. He get a wife. Yeah. Oh, I guess you're right. He just acts like it, you know. His thing was bad women and good women. Good women were Christian housewives that would provide him children and do what he wanted, and bad women were women that asked him for money for Like the Madonna whore complex or whatever, you see all women as either good, beautiful mothers of Jesus or whorish hell beasts. Yeah. Like King Henry VIII, if they don't give you a child, you kill them. That's Something like that. how one of his victims in Seward was. He was like, oh, this is a nice woman, we'll go on a date. And then she said, well, if you have money... And he oh, said, yeah. right. oh, you're a bad woman now, and I have to kill you. Fuck that guy. I'm glad Fuck he's dead, guy. although I think he got off early at 75. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to send us an email at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail.com. That's F-O-U-R cornerscrimecast at gmail.com. And you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash fourcornerscrimecast, on Instagram at fourcornerscrimecast, on Twitter at fourcornerscast, and fourcornerscrimecast.tumblr.com And don't forget to give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify. Check out our website, fourcornerscrimecast.com You can head over there for a full episode list or to send us ideas for an episode that you might want to hear. Or you can actually get a sticker 100% free from our merch store. Enter the code BINGOBANGO and that beautiful piece of vinyl will be sent out to you at no cost. So don't forget, sign up for some DNA testing services. Help some people be found identified, murderers, caught, all that fun stuff. Make sure you submit it to GED Match once you do get your results from like 23andMe, whatever they are. Yeah, everybody needs their general education diploma, and that's what we're working towards. Okay. I guess we'll talk to you next week, guys. See ya. Adios, motherfuckers! Even the police don't name their helicopters anything i'm sure they do air one air two air three big sparky (laughs) it's clip clap (laughs) chip chop